Hello, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and today it's just me. I'm flying solo. This is our penultimate episode of the season, our second last episode of the season, uh, and so I wanted to do something a little different. So today what we're going to do is consider a clinical topic and try to summarize the state of the evidence around this topic. So we're going to be talking about whether a patient should be on a new oral anticoagulant or warfarin for stroke prevention and atrial fibrillation. And as always, we'll end the episode with my recommendation for good stuff, something from the world of medicine that caught my eye this week. Okay, so let's talk about new oral anticoagulants versus warfarin in terms of effectiveness and safety. So this comes up all the time. I'm currently doing clinical service, and we recently admitted an 81-year-old woman who came into the hospital from her long-term care facility with pneumonia, and she was found to have atrial fibrillation. She also has hypertension and diabetes, and she had a previous GI bleed. So based on whatever calculator you want to use, whether that's your CHAD score, your CHAD's VASC score, the recommendation according to professional society guidelines, like the Canadian Cardiovascular Society, would be for this patient to be on anticoagulation. And so we as clinicians are left with the question of which anticoagulation should we start the patient on, warfarin versus a new oral anticoagulant. And I have to say I found myself, as I think most of us do, as a bit of a creature of habit with this, just sort of falling into a practice and being comfortable with that practice. But I hadn't really examined the state of the art on the issue, and there's been so much change in the literature over the last several years. So I wanted to examine this question from the perspective of several questions. First, what do we know about the efficacy of these different medications? Secondly, what do we know about the safety of these medications? And then finally, what are the unanswered questions on this topic? So I'm going to look at and describe several papers that have answered these questions. The first is a meta-analysis of randomized control trials that was published in The Lancet in 2014, and we actually covered this on the rounds table in our April 9th, 2014 edition that we called Like a Surgeon. The other papers I'll discuss come from real-world studies. One was a Danish registry of dabigatran versus warfarin that was published in 2013 in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology and two other observational studies that were published in the BMJ in 2015. There's also an excellent Lancet review on the topic. So we'll link to all of these papers on our website. Okay, so let's start with what we know about efficacy of new oral anticoagulants. So the meta-analysis of randomized control trials looked at four phase three studies of the new oral anticoagulants versus warfarin for stroke prevention and atrial fibrillation. And the four trials were the RELY study, which was dabigatran, ROCKET-AF, which is rivaroxaban, Aristotle for apixaban, and ENGAGE-AF-TIMI-48 for idoxaban. So in total, these trials looked at 42,000 patients on new oral anticoagulants and 29,000 patients on warfarin, more or less. And we can just pause for a second and ask, who were the patients in the randomized control trials? What did they look like? So on average, these were about 70-year-old people. It was about 35% women. Their baseline stroke risk varied amongst the trials, but was somewhere between 2 and 3.5 on the CHAD scale. Most of these patients had good kidney function, so 80% of them had creatinine clearance of greater than 50, 
and most of these studies had a follow-up of about two to three years. And effectively what they found is that new oral anticoagulants were more efficacious at reducing stroke, with a relative risk reduction of 19% when compared to warfarin, and this was largely driven by fewer hemorrhagic strokes. So that's kind of an interesting point, which is that although hemorrhagic strokes or bleeding in the brain is considered in the primary efficacy analysis, I think most clinicians would consider that actually to be an adverse effect, effectively like intracranial bleeding. And yet that is actually the difference which drives the finding that the new oral anticoagulants are more efficacious than warfarin. But overall, that's the finding, that new oral anticoagulants are associated with less stroke than warfarin. Furthermore, new oral anticoagulants have about 10% lower all-cause mortality when compared to warfarin. So that's basically the bottom line about efficacy in the randomized control trial population. When we look at real-world studies, for example, there was a Danish registry of dabigatran versus warfarin. They used an observational propensity-matched design, and they found basically that the two treatments, dabigatran and warfarin, had similar rates of stroke, systemic embolism, and bleeding. Overall, dabigatran was associated with lower mortality and less intracranial bleeding. Okay, so what do we know about safety? So obviously the main safety complication that we worry about with anticoagulants is bleeding. So the Lancet meta-analysis showed that new oral anticoagulants were associated with less intracranial bleeding by about 50% when compared to warfarin. Overall, they were associated with less bleeding in the clinical trials, but this was a non-significant trend. Importantly, the benefit in bleeding rates was actually not evident when they looked just at centers who had good warfarin time in therapeutic range, and I'll come back to that point in a few minutes. The other thing that the Lancet meta-analysis found was that the new oral anticoagulants were associated with increased risk of GI bleeding by about 25%. So what do the real-world studies show us? So I spoke a little bit about this Danish registry study. The Danish registry study of dabigatran versus warfarin showed that there was actually no difference between dabigatran and warfarin in rates of GI bleeding. One important difference between the observational study in the Danish registry versus the randomized control trial evidence is that the Danish registry patients tended to have lower baseline stroke risk. For example, their CHAD score was about 1 as opposed to a CHAD score of just over two in the randomized control trial population, suggesting that maybe the real-world population was a little bit healthier. But that study showed that the rates of GI bleeding were basically the same in a real-world population. Two other observational studies were recently published in the BMJ about GI bleeding and the difference between novel oral anticoagulants and warfarin. So one was by Chang and colleagues. This was a large administrative database from a private insurance company in the U.S., they looked at 5,000 dabigatran patients, 1,600 rivaroxaban patients, and 40,000 warfarin patients. And they found that the rates of GI bleeding was higher among dabigatran users and lower among rivaroxaban users compared to warfarin. But after they adjusted everything for confounders, there was actually no statistically significant difference between the three groups. Importantly, they made the comment that their confidence intervals were, were very wide and so they could not rule out potentially large differences between the drugs. The second observational study published at the same time in the BMJ was by Abraham and colleagues, and this was another large database including administrative data from both privately insured and Medicare uh, patients. They found 
A similar finding, which was that they found that the rates of GI bleeding related to the new oral anticoagulants was similar to that for warfarin. The one interesting thing that they found was that as patients aged, the rates of GI bleeding increased. And by age 76, the risk of new oral anticoagulants was higher than for warfarin. So quickly to summarize this safety data, we know that in the real world populations and in the meta-analysis of randomized control trials, new oral anticoagulants have lower rates of intracranial bleeding, although the real-world data for intracranial bleeding is a little bit thin. With respect to GI bleeding, the risk of GI bleeding seems to be about the same for the new oral anticoagulants compared to warfarin, or it may be a little bit higher, particularly in older patients. So what are the unanswered questions? And this really comes down to specific subgroups of patients. So first, age of patients. So the meta-analysis of randomized controlled trial data looked at older patients versus younger patients with a cutoff of 75 years. There were about 22,000 patients older than the age of 75 in the phase three clinical trials of new oral anticoagulants. And if you look at this subgroup specifically, at the older subgroup specifically, there's no difference in rates of stroke or systemic embolic events between the new oral anticoagulants and warfarin. And there were also no differences in terms of safety outcomes. With the real-world populations, we have seen that there may be an increased risk of GI bleeding in older patients associated with novel oral anticoagulants. And specifically, the dabigatran 150 milligram dose has been associated with increased bleeding in patients over the age of 80. The second population of uh, patients to think about are those who had a previous GI bleed. Again, we mentioned that this story around GI bleeding is a little bit unclear, but it does seem like dabigatran in particular may be associated with increased rates of uh, GI bleeding in real-world populations. In the phase three randomized control trial data, the only new oral anticoagulant that was shown to have lower rates of GI bleeding than warfarin was apixaban. And then the third topic I wanted to talk about is this issue of time in therapeutic range. So time in therapeutic range is the principle of warfarin control. How much time does a patient spend with their INR between two and three or at the optimal level of anticoagulation while on warfarin? Ideally, this is the gold standard against which we would compare the new oral anticoagulants. However, those of us who have prescribed warfarin in the real world know that it's challenging to keep patients between that range of two and three. And so most of the trials that we've seen actually uh, have not achieved that. The overall average time in therapeutic range for the phase three clinical trials is 65%. Uh, so the new oral anticoagulants have been compared against patients who have spent about 65% of the time in therapeutic range while on warfarin. There have been some sub-analyses of comparing new oral anticoagulants stratified based on the time in therapeutic range. One important point to make here is that all of the analysis examining new oral anticoagulants versus warfarin compared to time and therapeutic range is analyzed at the level of the center that's prescribing the drug, not the individual patients. And so what scientists have done is separate centers by time and therapeutic range. So centers with a time and therapeutic range of greater than 66% versus less than 66%. When they looked at this data in the meta-analysis of phase three clinical trials, they found that centers who have a time and therapeutic range of greater than 
show no difference between warfarin and new oral anticoagulants in either the safety or the efficacy outcomes. Whereas if you look at the centers that have a poor time in therapeutic range of less than 66%, then this is where the data tends to favor the new oral anticoagulants. So overall, there remains an outstanding question, which is whether new oral anticoagulants are indeed better than warfarin for patients who have good time in therapeutic range. For a more comprehensive discussion of this, have a look at the Lancet review paper that we'll link to on our, on our website. So let me summarize my impressions of this overall topic and what I've taken away from reading these papers. So new oral anticoagulants seem to be more effective in reducing stroke when you include intracranial bleed or hemorrhagic strokes, particularly for patients who do not have good warfarin control. Overall, the evidence does suggest quite strongly that new oral anticoagulants are associated with less intracranial bleeding. There's probably about the same rates of overall major bleeding, including GI bleeding, between the new oral anticoagulants and warfarin. Although patients with older age and getting a higher dose of dabigatran specifically may be associated with more GI bleeding. And finally, we don't have good data comparing new oral anticoagulants versus warfarin in patients who have good warfarin control. Finally, one editorial comment on my part about pragmatic issues, which is that we all know that new oral anticoagulants are much simpler to prescribe. We don't have to think about bridging patients with warfarin. We don't have to think about uh, managing outpatient blood work. We also know that new oral anticoagulants are more challenging to manage if a patient does have a bleeding complication although there seems to be some work in that field. And in fact, next week, we're going to be talking about an antidote for dabigatran. And then finally, both warfarin and the new oral anticoagulants are prone to drug interactions. And just because we don't measure the levels of drugs of the new oral anticoagulants, that certainly doesn't mean that there are not fluctuations in the level of the drugs happening in our patients. Okay, so let's bring this all back to the patient that I saw in the ward. So for your memory, this was an 81-year-old woman. She lives in long-term care. Her CHAD score is 3, and she has a previous GI bleed. She's been diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, and she's never had strokes in the past. So I'm going to pause for a second and let you consider what would you recommend for this patient? What anticoagulant would you recommend? So what we decided is that given the risks of GI bleeding and this patient's age, we decided immediately against dabigatran, particularly the higher dose. We also further decided that she was going to be in long-term care with good access to physicians, close monitoring of INR, and a very regular diet and schedule. And therefore, she is most likely to have good warfarin control. And so given the weight of evidence suggesting that in this patient population, warfarin is likely to be at least as good as the new oral anticoagulants, we recommended that this patient be started on warfarin. I'd love to hear what you think. Tweet at us at roundstable or at me at Amol Verma and let me know what would you prescribe for this patient. And let me know if you think that there are other resources or other topics that you would bring to this conversation, uh, which is obviously going to be an important discussion for clinicians as we uh, continue to navigate this new era of new oral anticoagulants. I hope that review is helpful for you. Okay, so now I'm going to move on to uh, the good stuff segment. I want to recommend something we don't typically recommend. Usually we recommend articles, but today I'm recommending a radio segment. This segment was called Hearing Voices, and it was on the CBC radio show Tapestry. 
So this show was about a patient, Natasha Merrick, who hears voices in her head. And she describes them as good voices and bad voices. She's been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. And she very eloquently describes the experience of living with these voices. She describes times where she found the voices really difficult to manage. They would become all-consuming. And she describes her experience with various aspects of psychiatric care, including medications, psychotherapy, and ultimately her participation in what's become an international movement called InterVoice, the International Hearing Voices Network, which is looking to reframe the experience of hearing voices and to help people live with the voices in their head. One of the philosophies or approaches that this group is taking is that this needs not necessarily be entirely viewed as a negative experience. I found this segment to do a really good job of balancing both the seriousness of mental illness uh, with examining the experience from a variety of different views, both practical and philosophical. They talk about how a number of cultures consider hearing voices to be an important religious experience. And Natasha Merrick describes at one point engaging with these voices directly. And she asked the good voices in her head to help her deal with and get rid of the bad voices. And what happened, she says, is that the good voices started telling her to do things like sleep regularly or exercise and eat healthy meals. And she found this very healing. So overall, this was really a beautiful story told by a woman with great insight and thoughtfulness, speaking candidly about her experience with mental illness. And I can't recommend it highly enough. So have a listen. Uh, we'll put the link on our website. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed this departure from our previous episodes and you didn't get too sick of my voice in this short time. Uh, and we'll be back again next week with our last episode of the year before we take a summer break. Take care and have a great week. <laughs>